Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're going to continue in our worship through the preaching of God's Word. And so I want to read our passage for us, which is found in 1 Kings chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll be reading the first seven verses of 1 Kings chapter 5. And so I encourage you to follow along as I read. When Hiram, king of Tyre, learned that Solomon had been anointed king to secede his father David, he sent his envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord, his God, until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, Your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. So give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My men will work with yours, and I will pay you for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one skill, so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. If you will, bow with me in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, that in it are the words of life, that on every page of it, it shows us our great need for salvation. And on every page, it points to the only one through whom we can find that salvation, Jesus, your son. And so Lord, I pray for Pastor Kevin this morning that as he faithfully proclaims your word that you'd give him clarity of mind. And Lord, I pray for each of us as we study your word, that we would humbly come before it, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are willing to be shaped and molded and conformed to the power of your Holy Spirit, Spirit to your Son, Jesus. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan, and thank you guys uh, for that incredible time of worship. When you came in this morning, you should have received a bulletin, and on the back of that bulletin, you will find a message map. Uh, that will help guide you as we walk through the text today. Um, and while you locate that, maybe a pen as well, let me take just a moment to uh, welcome those who are in our overflow room or if you are watching us online or listening by podcast, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us in worship today. In March of 2000, uh, I moved from North Georgia to Charlotte, North Carolina uh, to serve as the student pastor at First Baptist Church in that city. I was young and single, and in fact, I remember that I moved with all of my worldly possessions in the back of a Jeep Cherokee uh, that I owned at the time. Uh, shortly before I moved to, to Charlotte, a family in that church contacted me and said, hey, we're not sure uh, what your plans are, where you want to live, but we actually have a furnished garage apartment, and if you'd like to, you can live there. I said, well, that sounds like exactly what I'm looking for. How much will you charge me? And they said, well, you don't have to pay. It'll be, it'll be zero. And I said, well, that is exactly in my sweet spot. <laughs> I'll take it. And it turned out to be one of the better decisions that I've made in life. It was a wonderful family, really enjoyed uh, my time living there. What I did not know 
was the house they lived in sat on the property that had been owned by Heritage USA. If you're not familiar with Heritage USA, it was this 2,300-acre theme park slash religious retreat center slash convention center that was operated by Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Now, you've got to be somewhere over 50 to know who I'm talking about when I mention Tim and, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. But if you remember that name, you remember that Jim Baker was this famous televangelist, uh, this famous pastor who built a multi-multi-million dollar empire and at some point had this incredible theme park that was constructed in Fort Mill, South Carolina, just across the line from Charlotte. It was like Six Flags Over Jesus. I mean, it <laughs> had all the things, condominiums, hotels, all the rides. There were so many theaters, so many offerings that were there. It all sort of came crashing down in the late 80s when some scandals happened around his life. And then the theme park closed shortly thereafter. So less than a decade later, I move into this area, and one morning, just a couple of, dec- uh, couple of days after I'd moved into this garage apartment, I decided to go out for a run. And I began my run, and suddenly I enter this large parking lot, like you can imagine at Six Flags or Disney World. And on the other side of that parking lot, there were ticket booths, and everything was wide open. There was no fence. There were no signs saying, do not enter. So I kept running right through the ticket booth. And I ran past what was at one time a very elaborate putt-putt course with a big castle in the middle. At this point, weeds were just growing everywhere. I continued to run past some swings that would go up in the air and go around. And at this point, all the chains were rusted. I continued to run. There was a water slide, a large water slide. No water in the slide. It was all faded from the sun. There was a large wave pool, completely empty, no water. There were train tracks for a train that ran completely around the property and weeds were growing up through the tracks. I ran through this place and I was the only person there. No one else was around. I just spent a lot of time exploring. There was a hotel and it had a small mall attached to the hotel. No one was around. There was actually a 20-story hotel that I would later learn had been 99% completed when the scandals broke and they quit construction and no one actually spent a single night in it. At this point, the brick facade was starting to fall off and windows were busted and there was rust all along the rails. It was a fascinating experience. I felt like I was in a movie where a plague had killed most of the population, you know, and somehow I survived and I'm just going around this abandoned theme park. For about a month, every time I would go out to run, I would go and explore the different areas of this park until one day a security guard stopped me. And he said, sir, you can't go in there. And I said, well, I've been doing it for the last month and no one has stopped me yet. And he said, I know. He said, it's changed ownership. And in the last change, there was a gap and no one was really minding the store and they had not hired security guards. But you can't run back there. Well, it was a great month. Uh, still, one of the most fascinating, strangest, somewhat eeriest uh, experiences I've ever had running through all of this, uh, this abandoned theme park. Here's why I tell you that. If you have ever built something, 
you know how hard it is to build and sustain something of significance. Whether it's a career, whether it's a house, whether it's your own company or a charity or a theme park, to build and sustain something takes commitment and it takes a lot of hard work. This morning, that's exactly what we're going to see as we cover uh, several chapters in 1 Kings. Um, As you heard earlier, this is about Solomon constructing the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is part of Solomon's story, but it is a significant event as well in the history of Israel. Um, There are several chapters that cover this. Uh, It's a lot of material. Uh, I have attempted to summarize it as best I can. So let me give you a warning. If you're a Bible nerd, you will love this sermon. If you're not, if you'll just hang on, I'll get to how this applies to you at the end. So let me give you just a few highlights uh, of this massive building project that Solomon undertook. I won't read all of the verses, but you will see them on the screen if you're taking notes and want to reference them. The first thing in the temple construction is that cedar and pine logs were brought from Lebanon. Uh, You actually heard this in the passage that Ryan read earlier. Uh, Lebanon was known for its cedar trees, and so Solomon sent word to the king of Lebanon, basically putting in his order for all this lumber that he needed to build the temple. Secondly, 30,000 Israelites were conscripted to work with the wood, transporting it from Lebanon back to Israel. When you read the text, you discover that they actually worked in shifts of 10,000 men each. They would work for a month, have two months off, then go back and work for a month. Pretty good job if you ask me. Work for a month, get two months off. Not too bad. As well, there were 150,000 men who were conscripted to work with the stone that was used in the temple. Um, This stone was taken from a place that is today called Solomon's Quarry, Uh, And it's located just outside the old walls of the city of Jerusalem. It is sometimes called Zedekiah's Cave because King Zedekiah hid there when the Babylonians invaded and destroyed uh, Jerusalem. It is a five-acre underground cave. And if you decide to go with our group who is going to Israel next February, we will visit this cave. Uh, The deadline's approaching fast. There are brochures in the back and brochures in the uh, back behind me. Be sure to pick one of those up if you're interested in going. Um, There are several pictures that I took from when Katie and I visited there several years ago. You can see how massive this underground cave is. Uh, Again, five acres. Uh, Limestone was in this cave. They took the limestone, which is easy to, uh, to, to craft. It's very sturdy. And they used this in the building of the temple. Uh, Today, this limestone can be seen in the western wall, or what is uh, sometimes called the Wailing Wall. Um, That's the only part of Solomon's temple that remains. The last picture you'll see is of me and Katie. Uh, This is with our tour guide that we had uh, when we were in Israel named Mickey. He was a very good tour guide. Unfortunately, he will not be our tour guide uh, when we go back in February. Uh, Solomon began construction in the fourth year. Uh, of his reign. Now, the planning for the temple actually began way before that. In fact, his father, David, drew up the design documents for the temple. His father, David, raised money for the temple, and his father, David, actually secured many of the supplies that were used in the construction of the temple. 
But it was not until the fourth year of Solomon's reign that construction began, which meant Solomon was all of 24 years old when he began this incredible project. The temple was built on Mount Moriah. Uh, we see this in 2 Chronicles. Later, Mount Moriah became more commonly known as Mount Zion. Uh, there were several significant events that took place on Mount Moriah before the construction of the temple. Most notably, uh, the near sacrifice of Isaac by his father Abraham, which we read about in Genesis 22. Now again, if you go with us to Israel in February, this is one of the places that we will visit. Today, the Temple Mount is under uh, Islamic control. In fact, on the Temple Mount, you will find a church, uh, a, a mosque called the Dome of the Rock. It was constructed in 691 AD, um, and the entire Temple Mount area is under Muslim control. In, in fact, there's one more picture I want to show you of of me and Katie on the Temple Mount. Um, and one of the rules there is that men and women, even husband and wives, cannot hold hands or hug one another. And so couples would pose for pictures and naturally they would want to put their arms around each other or, or hold hands. We actually had a couple in our group who held hands during a picture and the police, the Temple Mount police came over and got onto them uh, about holding hands. And so as Katie said, I would like to get a picture with you. And I said, well, you got to stand over there because I'm not getting in trouble with the police. It, it, uh, affection between men and women is seen as a sign of disrespect. And so they do not allow that on the Temple Mount. Uh, next, the temple took seven years to complete. Uh, we see that in, in chapter 6. And finally, and this is interesting, the process was as important as the product. And I do want to read this verse. Here's what uh, verse 7 in chapter 6 says. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used. And no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site where it was being built. So they would do all of the work at the quarry and then transport the blocks several miles away to the temple mount to build the temple so that no sound was heard at the temple. No construction sounds were heard. For Solomon, the process was as important as the end product. It was not just about building the temple, but making sure that throughout the construction process that God was honored on this place that would become his dwelling place, that would become the temple where the Lord resided. So after seven years, the construction was finished, uh, and this is what we see in the temple after it was completed. Number one is the temple reflected God's goodness. In verse 29, we read that on the walls around the temples in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. There were other symbols as well that basically communicated the same thing. When people walked into the temple, they saw God's goodness. This was supposed to be a reminder of the Garden of Eden, of creation, the way that God meant for it to be. And so the worshiper would come in and be reminded that God is a good God. Secondly, the completed temple represented God's presence. Um, after the temple was completed in their very first worship service, Here's what happened. It says, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. 
And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now, this temple became the dwelling place of God, just as the tabernacle had before it. The tabernacle was a tent that traveled with the Israelites as they went from place to place. It was where the Israelites worshiped for nearly 500 years before the temple was completed. And God made it clear that his desire, just as it had been in the tabernacle, was to be with his people. That he was not a God who was far off on some distant mountain. That they worshiped, but they never really were able to have a relationship with God made it clear that he was with his people. Thirdly, although God was in the temple, the temple could not contain the Lord. Uh, again, in, in his dedication prayer, uh, Solomon prayed this, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built and so Solomon recognized that the Lord was in the temple, that his presence was in the temple in a unique way. But he also recognized that that temple could not hold God. That the walls of the temple could not contain the God of the universe. And so God was in the temple, but God was also everywhere. Number four, the completed temple was the mediator between God and man. Now, again, this was part of Solomon's prayer. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. <clears throat> and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul and pray to you toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then forgive your people who have sinned against you. And so the temple was to be the place where the people were reminded of God's grace and forgiveness. And then finally, the completed temple was designed to display God's glory to the nations. Again, here's what Solomon prayed. So, all, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. God never intended for the Israelites to experience his goodness and grace and keep it to themselves. That from the beginning, they were designed as a nation to be a light to the nations. That they were supposed to communicate God's goodness and grace to all the peoples of the earth. Now, I want us to fast forward from this passage through about a thousand years of history. Uh, the temple that Solomon constructed stood for roughly 500 years. Then... In 587 B.C., the Babylonians invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple as well. They then carried with them a number of citizens back to Babylon. If you grew up in church, if you remember the Bible stories, Daniel was one of those citizens who was, who was carried off to Babylon. And then later, a king named Cyrus allowed a man named Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then shortly after that, the temple was rebuilt. It became known as Zerubbabel's temple because Zerubbabel was the Jewish governor over that region at the time. And it was constructed around 520 BC. So for, uh, for about 70 years, there was no temple standing in Jerusalem. 
Then that temple stood for another 500 years. And in 20 BC, Herod the Great took that temple and he expanded it. Uh, He took that temple and he rebuilt portions of the temple in an attempt to bring it back to its former glory. Uh, Zerubbabel's temple was not like what Solomon had built. And so Herod wanted to bring it back to the way that Solomon had built it. This renovation was not completed until 63 AD, meaning the temple renovation was taking place when Jesus walked on the earth. Then in 66 AD, I can tell I've lost a lot of you already. (laughs) And it'll get good in just a minute if you'll hang with me. In 66 AD, the Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire. The Romans had occupied Israel for about 150 years, and they had zero desire to give up this territory. They enjoyed collecting taxes from all the people that they had conquered from these various regions. And when the Israelites rebelled, the Romans decided it was time to put down this rebellion. In 66 AD, it started. In 68 AD, the Romans got serious. They sent in a general named Titus, who would later become a Roman emperor. And he destroyed completely the city of Jerusalem. And he destroyed completely the temple in 70 AD. And the temple was never rebuilt. In my humble opinion, this fact of history is one of the greatest evidences of the truth claims of Christians. Why do I say that? Why do I say that the fact that the temple has not been rebuilt is an evidence that what Christians claim about Jesus is true? It's because of this. Except for that 70-year, very brief gap, the temple stood in Jerusalem for a thousand years. For a thousand years, the temple was there on the Temple Mount. And then 2,000 years ago, it was destroyed. Less than 40 years after Jesus came and died on the cross, the temple was destroyed and has never been rebuilt. Now, if you ask someone who is not a follower of Christ, why has the temple never been rebuilt? It stood for a thousand years and in the last 2,000, it has never been rebuilt. They may point to a number of reasons, some which make make sense. Like today, especially now with the Temple Mount being under Uh, The uh, Islamic control, if they tried to rebuild the temple, it would start a holy war. And they may give other reasons why over 2,000 years the temple was never able to be rebuilt. However, if you are a follower of Christ, you would say there is only one really good logical explanation as to why the temple has not been rebuilt. And we would say it is because the hand of God has kept it. From being rebuilt. Now, I know what your next question is. Why would God keep the temple from being rebuilt? It is because of what you see on your message map that we are finally getting around to covering. You can see the question at the top Why is there no longer a temple? Why did the temple stand for a thousand years and for the last two thousand years there is no temple? Why is it that Solomon constructed this incredible temple to God, but the temple is no longer there? There are three reasons 
the first and primary reason is Jesus is the temple. Jesus fulfilled the purposes of the temple. Again, Jesus dies and less than four decades later, the temple is destroyed and never be, been rebuilt. So how does Jesus fulfill the purposes of the temple? Number one, Jesus is God's glory among us. You can fill that in. Jesus is God's glory among us. As we read earlier, the temple held the glory of God. It represented God's presence, God's glory on earth. And then later, John would write about Jesus these words. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You may want to underline or circle the word dwelling. That word literally means to tabernacle. In fact, some translations say that the word came and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the precursor to the temple. The temple continued the, tab uh, uh, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's dwelling among his people. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, God dwelt among us. In Jesus, we see the glory of God. Secondly, Jesus serves as the high priest. So the role of the high priest in the temple was to intercede on behalf of the people. Uh, he was to be the mediator between the Israelites and God. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. That because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In other words, Jesus has fulfilled and perfected the role of high priest. Jesus intercedes for us. If you come to me and you say, hey, pastor, would you pray for me? I've got this issue. I've got this need. And I, I'm just really, I'm really uh, searching for, you know, some help right now. Can you pray for me? Absolutely. I will pray for you as your pastor and as your friend, but not as priest. Because you can go directly to God. As a follower of Christ, you do not need someone to serve as a mediator between you and God. Jesus is that mediator. You can go directly to God with your prayer needs. Thirdly, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. You can write sacrifice in there. The temple was the place where thousands and thousands of sacrifices were made. These animals, mainly goats and bulls, were sacrificed and their blood symbolically covered the sin of the people of Israel. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and there he would slaughter a goat and the blood of the goat would symbolically cover the sin of the nation of Israel. Again, notice what the writer of Hebrews tells us. That Jesus not only serves as the high priest, but as the sacrifice as well. Uh, that he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all. You can underline that once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The writer of Hebrews here argues that these continual sacrifices that had been made for a thousand years pointed to Jesus. 
who was the final and ultimate sacrifice so that no further sacrifices had to be made. Hence, the destruction and, uh, of the temple that has never been rebuilt. Why? Because there's no more need for sacrifice. Number four, Jesus is the temple in that he is the mediator between God and man. Uh, both, as both the high priest and the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus became the bridge between God and man. Notice what Paul wrote. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. So Jesus serves as both the high priest and as the sacrifice. And finally, just as the temple was a light to the nations, uh, we see the last one there, that Jesus is the Savior of all the nations. Now, Luke tells us that in Jesus that there is repentance for the forgiveness of sins that will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, which is exactly what you see happening both in Scripture and in books uh, about the history of the Roman Empire. This gospel message began to spread, and the message of Jesus became a light to the nations, literally changing the history of the world. Uh, however, not only is Jesus the temple, not only has Jesus fulfilled the purposes of the temple, but number two, and you can write this in, the church is the temple. Notice what we read in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit's Spirit dwells in your midst? Now, one of the things you need to keep in mind is that the yous here are all plural. It's one of the difficulties with the English language that you singular and you plural is the same. And it can be confusing, except in the South, we fixed it with the word y'all. And if the rest of the English-speaking world would pick up on this genius way to fix this problem, then we would be fine. Here, the yous are all plural. Uh, and, and you can see that in the next verse. It says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together, the NIV translators decide to say you together there, are that temple. Here is what Paul was saying. When believers come together, when a faith community comes together, God dwells in their midst. The church is the temple. In the New Testament, the church becomes the temple. Uh, and notice what Paul writes here. Is, it should be sobering to people who attack the church. It says if anyone destroys the church, then God will destroy that person. God is fiercely protective of the church. It is his instrument of sharing the gospel, of spreading the gospel, uh, and of his presence on this earth. In fact, the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. God is fiercely protective of his bride. And anyone who tries to destroy the church, God will destroy that person. Not only is Jesus the temple, not only is the church the temple, but here's the last one. You can write this in. Individual believers are the temple as well. Here's another verse from 1 Corinthians, found in chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So why was the temple that Solomon built 
so special. It was not because of the gold and silver and elaborate jewels that were used and the grand construction. It was because God himself dwelt there. Why was Jesus so unique, so special? Because Jesus was and is God dwelling among us on earth. What makes the church unique? It is because when we gather together as a faith community, God dwells in our midst in a unique way. What makes you as a follower of Christ unique? It is that God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit who is within you the moment you become a follower of Christ. If you follow Christ, this is true in your life. You are a temple. The Holy Spirit's dwelling in you. God is tabernacling with you, within your body. So Paul here says, because of that fact, because of that truth, honor God with your bodies. Are you doing that? Are you honoring God with your body and the choices that you make? Are you honoring God with the part of your body called the eyes, with what you watch, with what you view? The part of your body called the mouth, how you speak about others, how you speak to others, with the part of the body called the mind, how you think about the world, with your heart, with your desires, what you long for. You know, I've heard it said before that the most miserable person on earth is the Christian who lives like the world. See, those who aren't followers of Christ, they can sin and to some degree they can enjoy their sin. Christians can't. Now, we will fool ourselves that if we will act selfishly, that if we will just get this thing, if we will sin, then we will be happier. That's why we do it. But in the end, sin always lies. We think we'll be happier. The truth is we end up more miserable. Sin sin is never what we think it will be. We suffer as a consequence. Why is this? Why is it we can't just sin and enjoy it? Why can't we just go and have fun and like the rest of the world, just enjoy the sin? This is a big part of the reason why. God dwells within your body. The Holy Spirit is within you. And God is a holy God. And when we choose to sin with our bodies, then then a holy God is in conflict with this sin. God who cannot be in the presence of sin is within our bodies. We start to sin and suddenly there is conflict and we suffer as a result. So let me challenge you this week. As you get up in the mornings, as you begin your day, hopefully with some sort of scripture reading and praying, I want you to think about this fact. God is in you. Right now, God is in you. You are a temple of God. Honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. Every day this week, I want you to think, I'm going to honor God with my body. Why? Because God is dwelling within.